Amen. Good morning. We have a, uh, a bit of a family ritual every Sunday morning just to make our Sundays a little bit easier. Uh, every Sunday morning, I make our children cinnamon rolls for breakfast, the same breakfast every Sunday morning. Uh, don't be impressed. I get a lot of help from Pillsbury. And as I'm preparing those cinnamon rolls, I take the little icing container and I, I notice I kind of have a problem. I hate any food to be wasted, which probably creates other problems in my life. Um, but as I'm scooping out the icing for the cinnamon rolls, I want every single dollop of icing to go onto the cinnamon rolls. And I'll even take it and scrape it out and even take the lid and scrape out the icing from the lid and make sure all of that, and you even kind of have to hold the spatula at an angle and you can get, there's a little groove around the lid to get the icing out of that as well to make sure that you get everything that you're supposed to get from that can of cinnamon rolls. It occurred to me this morning that I kind of do the same thing when I'm preaching sometimes because we are now for the third week in a row in the same text in the Gospel of Matthew. You might be wondering how much longer. I promise you, unless the Lord has other plans, that we will move on to verse 13 next Sunday. Does that sound good? Uh, we began, of course, looking at what Jesus says about marriage and divorce in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Last Sunday, we looked at verses 1 to 12 kind of as a whole to look at how Jesus' worldview and the worldview of Scripture is incompatible with the worldview of pride. And this morning, we got one little dollop to squeeze out of this text, and that is what does this passage teach us about singleness. And by the way, if you are our guest this morning, um, it is not our practice to just every random Sunday come up with a topic to talk about, but to let the Word of God drive the agenda. Our main practice is to go verse by verse through the Scriptures, and wherever we are in the Bible is what we talk about on a Sunday morning. So this morning, we in God's providence are talking about singleness. And I thought it might be helpful to think about the Lord of the Rings. It's usually helpful for me, whether it is for you or not, remains to be seen. But before Bilbo left the Shire for the house of Elrond, he left his nephew Frodo a gift. Or was it a burden? The ring certainly had its benefits. After all, if it weren't for the ring, then Bilbo would have never earned his fame and fortune plundering the treasure of the dragon smog in the Lonely Mountains. But in the end, the ring would also prove to be a heavy burden. Although the ring was small, it carried a heavy weight for the ring bearer, especially on his soul. The longer the ring was carried, the heavier its weight would be felt. And worst of all, it was a weight that could not be shared. I think perhaps in some ways, the one ring is a bit like singleness. 
If you've been in the Christian culture for any length of time, you have likely heard of the gift of singleness. So the Bible does say, and we'll get to there in a little bit, does say that singleness is, in its own way, a gift. And yet it often, especially to those of you who are single or have been single for a long time, it feels like a burden. And it feels like the longer you carry it, the heavier the burden is. And it feels like there's nobody else that can carry that burden with you. Given the comparisons between the one ring and the gift of singleness, it's no surprise that in many Christian churches, when Bible teachers talk about this topic, we talk about how singleness is a gift, and then we spend most of our, telling you, most of our time telling you how to avoid it. So a, a sermon on singleness ends up becoming a bunch of tips on how to get hitched. Well, Jesus doesn't do that in our text this morning. And with God's help, I'm not going to do that either. Jesus' approach to singleness is different. Jesus, in our passage this morning, does something that is extremely countercultural in his day. Jesus honors singles. Here's the big idea I want you to get from God's word this morning Jesus honors singles who honor him in their singleness. Jesus honors singles who honors, sing, honors him in their singleness. He does that by affirming three truths about singleness that will be the outline for today's sermon. Truth number one, singleness is better in some ways. Truth number two, singleness is difficult in some ways. And truth number three, singleness is a gift no matter the circumstances. Now, before we dive into our text this morning and look at the way that Jesus honors singles, I want to say a word to the married folks in this room. Because you might right about now be thinking, perfect Sunday for a nap. Let me give you, really quickly, four reasons why you should pay attention to what Jesus says about singleness. Here's one reason. Many of you, even if you're married, will be single again one day. Now, that's kind of hard to think about. You know, we want all of our marriages to last until death do we part. But unless you and your spouse die at the same time, you're going to be single again one day. It's hard to think about, but it's true. A second reason you need to pay attention to this is because many of you are raising singles. Got lots of little ones in the room this morning. That's a good thing. You're raising singles. You need to know, how do I raise them in obedience to Jesus? A third reason you should pay attention, married couples, is you need to learn, I need to learn how better to love singles. Not by pitying them or playing the matchmaker, but by loving and honoring them where they are. And then number four, fourth reason to stay awake, married folks, Jesus, our Savior, is single. He spent 33 years in singleness. And so as you better understand what he believes about singleness, you will better love and understand him. And that's the main goal of all that we do, isn't it? So with all that said, let's listen carefully to three truths about singleness from our text this morning. Truth number one, singleness is better in some ways. Singleness is better in some ways. So after Jesus uh, teaches his disciples about marriage and divorce, the disciples come to him with an objection. Notice what they say in verse 10. The disciples said to Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not 
to Mary. Why do the disciples say that it's better to be single? Well, Jesus had just told them that there is no easy escape hatch to get out of marriage whenever you don't want to be in it anymore. There are some exceptions when it's permissible, but by and large, Jesus kind of shuts the escape hatches down. And the disciples say, well, that's really hard. If, if we have to be committed to marriage like that, then it might be better not to be married. Now, many scholars say the disciples are probably not offering a serious suggestion here because in Jesus' day, every self-respecting Jew would get married. It was kind of like your duty to God and country. You, you get married, you have babies. That's what you did. So they're probably not really being serious, but Jesus kind of surprises everybody, and he doesn't rebuke them for saying that. He doesn't say, what are you guys, are you guys crazy? No, he, he, he seems to actually affirm that it is, in some ways, better to be single. And a couple decades later, Jesus will use the Apostle Paul to explain two benefits of singleness. Here's what they are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, first of all, singles can avoid marital troubles. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7 verse 28. If you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, Paul here is not using the term worldly to refer to something sinful. He's, just, he's referring to something temporal, something earthly. A married couple potentially has much more earthly and temporal challenges than a single person does. Uh, to be clear, Paul is not saying that single folks don't have earthly concerns, but he does say that in marriage, those earthly concerns tend to get amplified. Uh, one lifelong single named Sam Albury, who's a pastor, puts it this way, the contrast is between complexity and simplicity. Married life is more complicated. Singleness is more straightforward. Well, how is singleness more straightforward? Well, it's really just simple math. When I was a single man, I could eat whatever I wanted whenever I wanted. Now, I have to pay attention to people's moods. They have, sometimes people who will remain nameless have certain moods of certain foods that they want to eat. And I have to pay attention to that, and I can't just eat what I want when I want. And now that I have five children, it just expands it even more and complicates it even more. When you're single, you can eat what you want, when you want, where you want, how much you want, or how little you want. When you're married, all of a sudden, you've got to pay attention to other mouths in the picture. Or when you're married, when you're married, like my beautiful wife, who's married to me, of course, when she manages a budget, it's a budget for seven. The single person manages a budget for one, typically. That's not even bringing in the idea that in marriage, you have another dynamic that's entered the picture, and that's something I remind every married couple when I officiate a wedding. It's that one sinner plus another sinner does not equal less sin. Now, single folks, if you're honest, you probably have a hard enough time dealing with your own sin. But all of a sudden, 
in marriage. You have your sin and their sin. And when you have kids, you've got just little sinners running everywhere. <laughs> it's more complicated. Maybe the same basic problems, but in marriage, it complicates everything. So, to the singles in the room this morning, let me ask you, do you have a realistic view about marriage? If you think that marriage is the cure for all of your troubles in life, you are not thinking clearly. Marriage is hard. It comes with many joys, yes, but also many challenges, many troubles. In fact, I think I can say to you, single person in this room, if you feel like you need to be married to fix some problem in your life, you really aren't ready to be married. Because marriage does not minimize your complications, it amplifies them. Desperate singles, I think, sometimes compare the advantages of marriage to the disadvantages of singleness, rather than comparing advantages to advantages and disadvantages to disadvantages. Paul says, listen, I want to save you from all of those extra troubles. Singleness protects you from that. And then he says in the same chapter, a second reason why singleness is better, and that's because singleness, or singles can pursue undistracted devotion. Uh, listen to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 to 34. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now, once again, Paul is not throwing married couples under the bus here. He's just simply saying that when you're single, you are able to have a more undistracted devotion to the things of the Lord than you might have when you are married. Husbands, it is right for you to care about what your wife wants to eat for dinner. Wives, it is right for you to care about your husband. It is right for us to care about each other in that way. But in singleness, you don't have that distraction. Now, I want you to notice something really carefully. Paul is not appealing to the common beliefs that we have about singleness in our day. Many singles today pursue undistracted devotion, but it's not to the Lord, it's undistracted devotion to themselves, to their own pleasures, to their own well-being, to their own desires. Many singles in our day enjoy the conjugal rewards of sexual intimacy without the covenant responsibilities of marriage. That is not at all what Paul envisions here for singles. The, the single's undistracted devotion is not about pleasing himself or pleasing herself. It's about pleasing Jesus. So hear me clearly, singles. You cannot honor Jesus in your singleness if you're not celibate in your singleness. It's the only way to honor Jesus as a single. So singles, are you using your singleness to please the Lord or to please yourself? How much of your time as a single is devoted to kingdom work? Have you even thought about that? 
Have you thought about what it might look like for you as a single person in this season in your life to use your time, use your energies, use your life for the kingdom rather than just to get more of the American dream? A single devoted to Jesus, honoring Jesus with his or her singleness is a single that's devoted to the work of Christ. So Jesus honors singles by admitting that in some ways singleness is better than marriage. And second, he also honors singles by admitting that singleness is difficult in some ways. After, after the disciples suggest that singleness might be better than marriage, Jesus responds in verse 11 by saying this, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Uh, there's some debate about the saying that Jesus is referring to here in verse 11. He could be referring back to the sayings that he gave about marriage and divorce, but in context, it's much more likely that Jesus, the saying he's talking about that they need to receive is what he said about singleness or the, the, the disciples' comment about singleness. So in other words, here's what Jesus is saying. Let's just kind of put it in our own words. He's saying, yes, I agree with you. Singleness is a viable option to marriage, but it's not for everybody. Now, why isn't singleness for everybody? Because singleness is difficult. Singleness is difficult. All right, I want the married people in the room. I want you to raise your hands for a second. Hold your hands up. If you're married, you're currently married, hold your hand up. And if you're a husband and wife together, both of you better raise your hands or someone's getting in trouble. Hold your hands up for a second. Okay, now keep your hands up. Keep them up. If you were born married, keep your hand up. Okay, that would be weird if anyone was. I don't know what I would do with that. Okay, so that means that all of us are either currently singles or we're former singles, right? Tracking with me? You're a former single. Now, married people, we think sometimes because we used to be single that we know how hard singleness is. But I think that we're probably wrong. Uh, Margaret Clarkson, who faithfully followed Jesus through decades of singleness, wrote this. Listen to this. This is really, really important. There is a vast difference between being single at 25 or 30 with marriage still a viable possibility and being single at 45 or 50 or 60 with little or no prospect of ever being anything else. Singleness has a cumulative effect on the human spirit which is entirely different at 50 than at 30. So in some ways, it's like that one ring that the longer Frodo carried it, the heavier it became. So married folks, let's be careful not to assume that we know how hard it is to be single. What are some of the difficulties of singleness? If you're going to obey Jesus, there's the difficulty of not enjoying the gift of sexual intimacy, which means the added difficulty of never enjoying the gift of children which also means the added pain of feeling like a part of who you are as a sexual being is wasted, not to mention the loneliness that many singles endure day after day as they come home to an empty house with nobody to talk to. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, 
Perhaps it's really strange for you to think about anyone choosing to deny themselves and follow Jesus in this way. Perhaps for you, you're thinking, well, why can't I just have my cake and eat it too? Why can't I enjoy all, all the, the marital benefits and still be unconnected and single? Why does it really matter? Why is it so important? That might seem really strange to you, friend, but it becomes less strange when you understand the gospel. The gospel is a word that literally means good news, and it's the thing that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world is all about good advice. Christianity is about good news. Well, what's the good news of Christianity? It begins with a creator God who made this world and everything in it, and he is perfect in all of his perfections. He is holy, he is glorious, and he demands perfection. Now, that's good news that that's who God is, but it's bad news when you recognize that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were created in a garden paradise, and they rebelled against God, and as a result, all of us have now been cursed by sin. Now, I think if we're honest, many of us don't really register how big of a deal our sin is. We look at everyone around us and we think, well, I'm pretty good compared to those people. Well, perhaps it would help to think about it like this. I've got a big book here. Let's just imagine that this book holds the record of every sin that you've ever committed. And probably it'd be a much bigger book than this. So if you feel like you're particularly bad, you might say this is one year or maybe even one day. But let's just say for the sake of argument, this is all the sins you've ever committed in your entire life here in this one book. Now imagine that the ceiling represents God and this is you. Because of your sin, because of the record of sin that you have, you have accumulated in your life, there is a gap between God and his holiness and you and your sin. When God looks at you, all he sees is what? He sees the sin. He sees your record, and it's not good. And even if you were somehow able to do some good works for the rest of your life, you still don't expunge this. It's still here. You can't wash out this ink. So Jesus comes along, and here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus comes along. He lives a sinless life. There's nothing separating Christ from the Father. He lived a sinless life. Even in his singleness, he was without sin. And yet Jesus willingly died on a cross and receives all of your sin debt upon himself. All of a sudden, Jesus is punished by God on the cross as if he has done all the sin that you've committed. And all of a sudden, if your faith is in Christ, you have a clean slate before God. That's the gift of the gospel. When you really understand that, you really understand what Christ has done to save you, Christian, there's no sacrifice that really seems that great that he would die to pay the penalty for every sin I've ever committed. Why would I not give my life to follow him? Singleness is difficult, but the truth is every follower of Jesus endures hardship in this life. If you're a single in this room and you're feeling the difficulties of singleness right now, let me just speak to you for a moment. Please lean into the fellowship that Jesus has given you in the church. 
lean into the church. It's no accident that the New Testament repeatedly calls the church a family. You hear something multiple times every Sunday when we gather, good morning, what? What do we say? Family. Isn't it interesting, too, that the Bible doesn't call us cousins and great uncles and, you know, third brother-in-law twice removed. It calls us brothers and sisters, close family. So to the single, you have a close family available to you in the local church. Let me plead with you, please, if you're feeling the weight of the singleness in your life right now, please talk to someone about what you're going through in your church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived his entire life in singleness, wrote that the single person needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. Singles, talk to Jesus about your your struggles, but please also talk to one another. Be open with somebody about your struggles with loneliness, with sexual temptation, with bitterness, with doubt, and more, so that we can come alongside you and help you. And married people, if a single Christian opens up to you about this, don't let your first instinct be to hook them up with somebody. Listen and love them. To the married folks in this room, how often have you stopped to consider how difficult singleness can be? for the Christian who's actually trying to obey and honor Jesus in their singleness. How might you grow in your empathy and your care for the single people in your church family? Perhaps you could read a book like Seven Myths About Singleness by Sam Albury. Or maybe you can just ask a single in your fellowship group or in your Sunday school class, tell me about your challenges following Jesus and your singleness. How can I pray for you? How can I come alongside you? How can I empathize with you and love you in the midst of that? If you're a single in this room who is not feeling the difficulties of singleness, let me ask you, why is it not a challenge for you in this season? It could be you've reached a point where, like Jesus, like the Apostle Paul, you're content in your singleness. If that's true, praise the Lord. Or it could be that you're not feeling the weight of it because you're enjoying the benefits of marriage without the bonds of marriage. It's not hard for you because you're not really honoring Jesus in your singleness. Hear me again, loved one. You cannot honor the Lord in your singleness if you're not celibate in your singleness. If the inner attorney in your head is saying, well, that's just way, way, way too hard. Nobody can do that. I'm going to invite you to listen again to the words of lifelong single Margaret Clarkson. Listen to what she wrote. Through no no fault or choice of my own, I am unable to express my sexuality and the beauty and intimacy of Christian marriage as God intended when he created me a sexual being in his own image. To seek to do this outside of marriage is, by the clear teaching of Scripture, to sin against God and against my own nature. As a committed Christian, then I have no alternative but to live a life of voluntary celibacy. I must be chaste not only in body, but in mind and spirit as well. Since I am now in my 60s, I think that my experience of what this means is valid. I want to go on record as having proved that for those who are committed to do God's will, His commands are His enablings. She continues a little bit further down, and she says, It may not be easy But whoever said that Christian life was easy? The badge of Christ's discipleship was a cross. 
Why must I live my life alone, she asks. I do not know, but Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I accept my singleness from his hand. I believe in the sovereignty of God. He could have ordered my life otherwise, but he has chosen not to do so. As his child, I must trust his love and wisdom. To the singles in this room, I would urge you to do the same to trust his love and his wisdom even in the difficulties of your singleness. Singleness is difficult. And number three, Jesus says singleness is a gift no matter the circumstances. Uh, look again at Jesus' words in verse 11. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Did you notice the way that Jesus describes singleness? It's something that's given to us. Who then is the one that's doing the giving? It's God himself. If you are single, you have received a gift, a good gift from a gracious God. This is really important because in Jesus' day, many people viewed singles with suspicion and disdain, but Jesus did not. Singles, when you honor the Lord in your singleness, you are welcomed and affirmed by Jesus you are not a second-class Christian. He, he doesn't look at you with suspicion or pity. He sees you, he rejoices in you, and even honors you by pointing to his own example as a lifelong single. The idea that singleness is a gift is also clearly taught by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Listen to the text, uh, verses 7 and 9. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own, look, gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I, I think Paul's teaching in those verses has been misunderstood by many Christians, I think that many Christians think that the gift of singleness is something like a spiritual superpower. The gift of singleness is the ability to be lifelong celibate and not really want to be married. And it's kind of this supernatural ability to say, I'm not really worried about those things. I have the gift of singleness. And the, the single that wants that companionship, well, you don't have the gift of singleness. Let me suggest that there's a much better way to think about the gift of singleness that I think Jesus supports in our passage. Raise your hand if you are currently single. All the singles, all right, even if you've been divorced or widowed, raise your hand if you're single. Little ones, little kids, unless you're married, raise your hand too. For all the singles, raise your hand. Okay, a number of us, some of us are just too shy to raise our hand. Great job. All right, now, everyone who, you can put your hands down. Everyone who puts your hand up has the gift of singleness. You have the gift of singleness. Because the gift of singleness is not a supernatural ability to be happy in your singleness. The gift of singleness is to be single. It's the condition of being single. Whether you're only single for a few more years or for the rest of your life, if you are currently single, you have the gift of singleness. 
I think Jesus supports that in Matthew 19. He lists three circumstances that led to singleness in his day, and all of them are a gift from God. First, Jesus says, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. We've been talking about singles all morning. What's a eunuch? One scholar puts it this way, in the most literal sense, a eunuch was someone who is physically incapable of procreation and thus who cannot marry. So in Jesus' day, one of the main reasons to get married was to have children. Uh, so anyone who was born with a physical condition that did not allow them to have children would be unable to marry. Jesus here is talking about someone that is a eunuch, has a physical condition that would keep them from being able to have children from birth. What type of person is Jesus talking about? If you were this last Sunday, I mentioned various disorders that cause infants to be born with ambiguous gender. Today, we label these disorders under a broad category called intersex. That term is new. Those conditions were well-known in the ancient world and even in Jesus' day. And I think it's very likely that Jesus is referring to intersex persons here in this verse. Now, we need to be careful. We need to be really, really careful because being a eunuch, born a eunuch with a biological condition from birth is not the same thing as what our culture calls transgenderism. A transgenderism, a transgender person has a psychological disorder. They feel like they're in the wrong body, even though their physical body is whole. But a, the people that Jesus is describing in this verse, these are people with a physical disorder. Their body is not physically whole. There's a real biological condition. And notice how Jesus cares for them. These people would have been labeled as freaks in Jesus' day. But Jesus treats them with dignity and respects them as image bearers of God. If Jesus treated such people with dignity and respect, shouldn't we do the same? So first, there's eunuchs who are born eunuchs. And then second, Jesus says, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. What's Jesus talking about? Well, in Jesus' day, there was a common practice in the ancient world of castrating a male so that he could manage the king's harem without being a, a rival to the king. This was not a birth defect, but a horrible evil forced upon someone else by people in power. Now, perhaps you're thinking, I am so grateful we live in the 21st century and things like that don't happen anymore. I would say to you, think again. Gender-confused boys and girls throughout the Western world are regularly given puberty blockers to delay puberty while the child decides which gender they want to be. And this medication has chemically castrated thousands of image bearers of God. Others have gone even further and mutilated their bodies so that they can appear different than how God created them. While it's true that most of these people re requested these treatments, they often did so without knowing the irreversible damage that this would cause to their bodies. 2,000 years later, 
Powerful people are still stealing the sexuality of perfectly healthy image bearers of God. But again, listen to me. Look at how Jesus treats these, these people with dignity and respect. He affirms them as image bearers of God. If, if you need a reminder of this, isn't it interesting that the very first Gentile convert in the book of Acts, you can read about it in Acts chapter 8, is an Ethiopian eunuch. Jesus says, I love to take broken people and use them. I love to do that. Even the people that feel like they're so broken beyond repair, that they've caused irreversible damage to their mind, to their body, to their soul. They might have castrated themselves and mutilated their bodies. Jesus says, your soul is not mutilated, and I can use you for my glory in my kingdom. And if Jesus can affirm folks like this, then so can we. Finally, Jesus mentions eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I think the NIV translates this phrase best when it says that this is a third group that chooses to live like eunuchs. He's not referring to being a literal eunuch, but somebody that chooses to live like that, to, to forego their sexuality, their expression of that in intimacy for the sake of the kingdom. So looking at these three categories, we could divide singles into two main groups. There are singles who choose to be single for Jesus' sake, and there are singles who didn't choose their singleness. Among those who choose to be single for the sake of the kingdom, we can include people like Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul, John the Baptist, Corey Tinboom, David Brainerd, Lottie Moon, Amy Carmichael, John Stott, and many, many others. These men and women embrace their singleness voluntarily and say, I'll gladly give that up for the kingdom, for the cross. Gladly give it up. There may be someone in this room that feels that way about your singleness. If that's you, dear friend, would you talk to one of our elders so we can pray with you and encourage you and maybe help you think through how you could use your singleness for the sake of the kingdom? What about everybody else? What about those who didn't really choose their singleness? What about the reluctant singles? This would include faithful Christians like Sam Albury and Ed Shaw and Vaughn Roberts who have openly admitted their struggles with unwanted same-sex attraction they desire the intimacy and companionship of marriage, yet they affirm the scriptures, and so they're committed to lifelong celibacy. This would include women like Laura Perry. We talked about Laura last week. She was born female, lived for nine years as a man named Jake, mutilated her body, and thought that when she came to Christ that she would never be married. In God's providence, she was actually just recently married, but many people that detransition after pursuing that lifestyle, may never find a spouse, even though they might want one. This would include men and women like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Margaret Clarkson, who longed to be married, yet lived their entire lives as singles. This would include men like C.S. Lewis, who was once married to his beloved wife, Joy, and when she passed, he grieved her tremendously and grieved his singleness. This would include every single in this room who desires marriage and yet has not yet been given that gift. 
Whatever the reason for your singleness, if you're a reluctant single, please hear me carefully. Your singleness is still a good gift from a gracious God. And God knows how to give good gifts to his children. Listen to Matthew 7. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? To the singles in this room, I I plead with you, trust that your Father is good. Your singleness is not a snake. It's a good gift from a heavenly Father. Jesus honors singles by reminding singles that their singleness is a gift. I told you when we started that I didn't want to spend my time teaching you tips on how to get rid of your singleness and get married. Carrying your singleness is first and foremost not a quest to get rid of it, just like Frodo, he had a quest to get rid of the one ring. But Frodo does eventually destroy the one ring. So too, there is coming a day, dear Christian, when you will be forever rid of the weight of your singleness. Also, I could say to the married couples in this room, there is coming a day when Christian couples will be free from all the weighty parts of our sin-stained marriages. Why? Because singleness is temporary. The Bible teaches that Jesus is a bridegroom who is coming one day, returning to take his bride, the church, to be with him in a perfect new creation. Revelation 19, 7 says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. All the things you long for in marriage, dear loved ones, you will have in Christ and better. Every tear will be wiped away. All the joy will be forever yours. Whatever is good and glorious and free from sin about marriage in this life is merely a shadow of what awaits us in heaven. So listen to one final promise before we pray. Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Let me ask you, dear ones, who is this perfect single who always kept the Sabbath who always chooses to do the things that please the Father, who completely holds fast to God's covenant. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So grab on to him, and all these promises and more are yours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your beloved.